straight ahead with the 606 Club from Midnight Wednesday. made the most of that beautiful weather that we had last week, possibly, possibly the last throw of summer 2021. Welcome to Straight Ahead Jazz and Conversation with me, David, and the 606 Club of London. 
What's Happening Next, the track that we opened up the show with this week, was by the soul songstress herself, Gina Foster, possibly best known for her work with Swing Out Sister. Gina is back with us at the club this coming Friday from 9 o'clock. If you pop on over to the website 606club.co.uk, you can find all of the gig details there. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Jules Holland released uh, an album that uh, was all about landmarks in and around London, and I don't think I've actually played anything on the show before, so let's put that to rights now with Brick Lane. Heavy rip, heavy rip, heavy rip, heavy rip, heavy rip. Vikings. 
and Brick Lane. Of course, of course, we have a guest on the show this week and it's saxophonist Hannah Horton. Hannah's going to be doing an album launch down at the club for her brand new set called Inside Out on Wednesday the 22nd, uh, almost a week away. So we've got uh, Hannah on the show this week talking about the project and uh, what brought her into the life of being a musician and of course playing uh, tracks from that album too. That's all to come on this week straight ahead. And we've also got music this week from Carlos Vega, something brand new from Jane Parker and uh, Zoe Gilby as well. But carrying on now with a track from an album called Northern Perspectives that we started to play a few months ago from the Abbey Finn Trio, and this is Walkabout.
ever. It seems to be a very busy week down at the club, and I'll be playing music for most of the guests that we've got with us over the course of the next seven days on the show this week, and certainly running down with you all of the artists that are with us. I mentioned that we're going to be playing something from Carlos Vega. Let's go to his album now, Art of the Messenger, and play this Spurred's Word. Thank you. 
Sosa, so that new track from Jane Parker that I was speaking of a short while ago for many, many years now. Jane has been a massive Dexter Gordon fan and uh, she's not alone in that, is she? And there's a track she particularly liked called Le Coiffure that was originally on the Getting Around album. So Jane got in touch with Dexter's uh, music publishers, Second Floor Music over in New York, got permission to uh, delve into his back catalogue and has come up with a vocal version, which she's, uh, again, with a little nod to Dexter and his back catalogue, is called Doing All Right. So this is the vocal version of Le Coiffure, once again featuring Dave Colton. I wake up and see the sunshine every morning I always brush my teeth and whistle something corny Cause I'm doing, I'm doing alright When the post arrives, no bills, just invitations And if I'm running late, my train waits at the station Cause this job i get some music like that to play on a show wonderful the brand new single from jane parker and dave colton and uh, it's called doing all right by this time next week i hope to have my hands on the full album from paul edis the still point of the turning world but while i'm waiting it eagerly to arrive in the post let's play the lead single muddle through
hopefully if Mr Postman plays ball, I should have that album with me next week, the full album from Paul Edis, and uh, we'll do a feature on it. And Paul and I have spoken about the possibility of him coming back on straight ahead to have a chat about the brand new project. But now to this week's guest saxophonist, Hannah Horton. As I mentioned, she has a brand new album coming out in about a week's time. Wednesday the 22nd of September is the album launched with us down at the club. And uh, we're going to be playing tracks on the album now on the show around the interview. And the first track we've got lined up is a track that features the vocals of Ian Shaw. And on interview, Hannah actually talks about the trepidation of sending out one of her compositions for Ian to lay down lyrics on. But uh, the track we're about to listen to now, ahead of the first part of the interview, is Breathing Out. Straight Ahead, Jazz and Conversation. Ouch, ouch. 
This week on the show, it is saxophonist Hannah Horton. Hannah, how are you doing? I'm really good, thanks. How are you? Hot. I've been yeah. in the studio a lot today and it is mighty warm, mighty warm, but can't complain. It's going to be the last few days of summer we get this summer, I dare say. Yeah, we need to make the most of it. It has been a bit disappointing so far. Hasn't it just? But um, So we'll go to the album launch a little bit later on, but obviously the main reason for having you on is you've got an exciting new project you've been working on hard this year, the Inside Out album, which is going to be, uh, the album launch is going to be down at the 6th towards the end of September. Um, so we'll build to that towards the end, but let's just talk about you sort of growing up. Was it sax or was it recorder? Be honest now, was recorder the first <laughs> instrument that you laid your deft hands on? Well, I think it was the recorder and can you believe it, the ocarina? Never explain. What is it? Well, my godmother had an ocarina in my playbox at her house. You need to rewind it. What is an <laughs> ocarina? I've never even heard of it. Is that embarrassing for me to admit that? No, I think it's more embarrassing that I know what it is. So it's, <laughs> it's meant to be like a pottery kind of ball, which you blow into. It has four holes on the top and it can have more than one hole at the bottom for your thumb. And uh, I used to love just tootling about on that. It sounds really sad, doesn't it? And then I would have a small and a big one. So you hang them around your neck and you can swap depending on the piece. <laughs> <laughs> sounds particularly technical. So <laughs> your, uh, so I've already forgotten the name, the Ocarina, was uh-huh. it a, a long and distinguished career you had on the Ocarina section of the bands or? I don't think so. I think it was just, it, <laughs> I, it was just a bit of a challenge. and It was a bit like maths and I just liked to just muck about on it. And then, then I did the good old recorder with my mum. See, that's something, isn't it? Suddenly, the recorder's taken a step up. Yeah. The recorder's not as bad as the ocarina. Suddenly, it's not the worst of all instruments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry to any recorder players out there. And uh, so that kind of led on then to you enjoy music, reading, learning to read and so on. So is your mum and dad musicians then? Because you said you, you were playing with your mum. No, no, they're not that musical. And um, I learned from my mum's recorder books, which she did at school, that had God Save the King in them. So it had, it was like really, really old stuff, amazing adverts. And yeah. And uh, I did the recorder a bit 
at school, like at lunchtime to get out of the rain. You know, you, st- you can stay inside. And then a lady came to primary school and just said she was going to start doing lessons. So I went to see her and she looked at my teeth and said, oh, you should do the clarinet. Okay. I've met a few horn players in my time, but I've never been heard that one. They're defined by their teeth. Yeah. <laughs> Why were your teeth particularly good for clarinet? I don't do know. Do explain. Tell more. I don't know. I mean... They are quite Sounds big. like a young girl self-conscious, isn't it? Yeah, probably. <laughs> it's, it's like if she'd have said, oh, you've got big lips, I'd have just, that would have been worse, wouldn't it? <laughs> I'm sure they couldn't say that to children this day and age. No. You've got perfect teeth for an instrument. So the clarinet, because so, that's obviously a, a very notoriously tricky, hard horn to play, isn't it? Yeah, because it's open hold. So I did the clarinet for a while, mm-hmm. uh, probably about a year. And then when I was 10, she said, I think you should try another instrument as well. Try the sax. Right. And had you already sort of like the look of a sax? Had you had a little private dabblings with it? No, no. And the way that I got into music was I didn't, that was really awful. I didn't really have an urge to play an instrument. I just like getting it right and getting the tick. So, oh, just generally across, that's your way of life, is it? You like to be the, the girl that does things right, the girl that does things good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. If we were if we were starting sitcoms, you would be the Monica, would you? Yeah, I love the tick. <laughs> and I like it when people say, yeah, good job. I'm like, yay. <laughs> so then of the saxes, was it the alto you took to, first of all? Yep, I did the alto. And then by the time I was at secondary school, I think I had a tenor already. So did you did you find the progression quite easy then through the, the reeds? Through, you know, from uh, clarinet through to alto and then on to tenor? Was it a fairly easy progression for you? So they're not an easy instrument to get around, the, the very limited knowledge I have of them. Yeah. My sax career was about three months. Oh. <laughs> uh, they are different because the, the low notes are harder to get out than the clarinet mm-hmm. on the saxophone. The embouchure is totally different. And I of remember course, yeah. squeaking and squawking a bit on things like I learned <laughs> EastEnders and Last of the Summer Wine and um, Hawaii Five O. I love that one. Oh, good grief. Good grief. <laughs> Hawaii Five O. You're too young to have seen it the first time round, surely. Yeah. But I remember yeah, see, I, rem- I, rem- I remember it. That was a classic tune as well. There were some great TV themes from back in the 70s, weren't there? They really, yeah. well, I can tell you there were. Trust me, there were. But um, I had a book of TV themes. Well, I've got a CD of CD themes. So that's how good <laughs> they were. See, we, we should trade. It's almost like cigarette cards, cigarette cards. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Top Trump's kind of things we should trade. So but let's get back to you and your sax. So I know that at a fairly young age, you went off to the Junior Guild Hall to study as well, didn't you? Mm. Is that something you have to... Well, I don't know if audition's too stern a word at that age, but how... What's the, because it, obviously it is one of the, the, the conservatoire, but I'm assuming even for the younger age, they still only want a certain calibre of musician there. Yeah, I um, I auditioned on saxophone and bassoon. I was playing bassoon as well, by mm-hmm. and I ended up doing first study jazz sax and second bassoon. So yeah, we had to audition, um, and so then I would go up on a Saturday, and I I absolutely hated school, but I lived for Saturdays where I could just go to London, and you know, I used to get up really early, like half past five. Where, where were you brought up then? Where were you brought up? Um, in a Near Saffron Warden in Essex. Oh, so it's a fair old journey because they're, they're in, the, in the city, aren't they? Yeah. There was about six of us used to catch the train in. Uh, mm-hmm. so, some of us went to, uh, to Guildhall, some went to Trinity, some went to the Academy. And we were so sad we used to get our instruments out on the train and play on the way in. <laughs> wow. Early morning renditions of uh, Hawaii Five O and clarinets and yeah. saxes. <laughs> The other passengers must have just loved you. (laughs) 
a scene from fame that I don't think it would have been somehow. Yeah, we were a real mixture of instruments as well. So it was, it was just, it was just fun to muck about. It was very innocent, you know. We just well, that's the thing. You, you, you know, later in life, you've got plenty of time for it all to be serious and you know a profession. But at that stage, it has to be sure. If you find that you're good at it, you want to perform well, and we already know you're the girl that likes the big tick. But even so, there still has to be an element of fun in there, doesn't it? Because otherwise, you're just not going to stick to it as a younger kid. Yeah, yeah. And so those sessions at the Junior Guildhall, did they prove worthwhile to you? Looking back, do you think? They did, and oh, oh, mainly just not just, but I absolutely just loved it. It was it was the best thing of the week, um, mm-hmm. and I worked hard on Sunday to get all my homework done so I could do other things in the week with and go in on a Saturday, and and I loved it, and all of us there loved it. I mean, it's, it sounds really really sad, really, doesn't it? But uh, you know, I didn't really do any team sports. I just rode my bike and I did some dance. So. I that was my like my team thing, and I just loved hanging out with music and with my friends who liked music. I know your parents weren't uh, musicians or particularly musical, as you said. Did you were they fairly supportive of what you were doing? Were they trying to encourage you? Look, if you're good at this, yeah, give it a go, give it a crack. Yeah, they were they were really really supportive. Originally, my dad said, "Do music; it's cheaper than horses." So that's probably. I've I've been in his position. It's not much cheaper. Not when you get into saxes. It's not much cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> but these saxes don't need vets. Yeah, exactly. And 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 you don't have the the trauma of dying and all that sort of thing. I think. Yeah, it's minus the death bit. Yeah, watching your daughter go off on canter and gallop is is not a nice thing. Not a nice thing. So I feel if your dad, I've been in his shoes. Yeah. So so he was very. They were very supportive, and I guess they didn't really. Because I'm an only child and no one's been musical in my family, no one really knew if I was any good. They just knew I loved it. So off I went. And so now uh, I know you ended up with Nigel as well, didn't you? So what sort of age groups are you talking? You were getting to Nigel, what, sort of 15, 16 onwards or something? I went to Nigel when I was very late in my teens, 17 and 18. And um, I met some lovely guys there and I really, really enjoyed my time there. Um, we, We used to have different great fun you know it was kind of harder stuff and on it uh, but it, it was really good it's a great breeding ground it has been for years and years until still to this day it proves to produce some great players doesn't it so so then you did i know you did a postgrad at trinity but where was your a degree at then i went to goldsmiths in new cross ah the hidden gem the one that doesn't get talked of very often ah, it's, it's always the main three isn't it but you went there and what was that like then I loved it. It was just right for me. It was, um, it was a bit quirky and different when I was there, which is just what I needed to settle in and feel like I belonged there. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I had really good fun. I had played in loads of groups there. Um, I did my dissertation on the arrangement techniques of Gil Evans in the cool period. Is, <laughs> that so sounds cool. such a dissertation <laughs> project title, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I, I learned some amazing arranging from Paul Bartholomew, who does the arranging, did the arrangements for Holland, and and I and just the people there were just so enthusiastic, and all the lecturers, and it was fantastic, actually, really good. And I'm glad I went there rather than to music college, having done Paul. Sometimes when you look back, you, uh, you know, I don't know if you auditioned for the other conservatoire or not, but uh, sometimes when you look back the place chooses you for a reason, doesn't it? Mm. And although it appears it was hard at the time, maybe not getting into where you wanted to go, 
it actually proves sometimes to be the right thing to end up where you are because you can flourish more. You, you know, you're just happier in that environment because I understand that the main three conservatoires are incredibly pressurised and expect so much out of you. If you're not of that exact mindset, I think it could be a tough gig being at one of those. Yeah, definitely. And I met my bestest ever friend on the first day that we moved into halls. And even now she's like the one in my life. So... Is she, is she still a musician to this day? Did she stick with it? She didn't even do music. She, she did psychology. She's now, oh. she's now an amazing teacher and uh, chats to her all the time. And, uh, and I wouldn't have met her if I had, we hadn't gone there. So. so then, obviously, as we mentioned, you did the postgrad, so you kind of extended your education on into your early 20s. And I know you studied with some of the luminaries in the sax world, such as Mark Lockhart and Tim Garland. I've had Tim on the show. I mean, Tim kind of, you know, his name speaks itself, doesn't it? But, yeah. uh, and you smile as I say that. But working with those guys in close proximity must just be amazing, I should have thought. Yeah, really good. I did, for my advanced postgrad, I did joint jazz classical. Um, and sometimes you'd come out of a jazz lesson and it'd feel like, you know those cartoons where your eyes are pulled out and they twizzle them around <laughs> and they just let them go back in your face. It's just like, whoa. And I just have to sit down and process all this information. I feel like that when I just read an email. So yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And you just think, wow, I've just just taken all that in. It, is, it, was, it was such a kind of melting pot of ideas, which was, mm. which was good. And it was good to do the both because there was loads of technique and yet loads of jazz. And- yeah, because they do tend to cover all spectrums, don't they? So it's not purely performance. It's the whole gamut they're trying to produce in you. So you understand the full spectrum of jazz. And it was, a, it was jazz degrees you did all the way through, was it? A goldsmith and then your postgrad, they're all jazz degrees. Goldsmith was just a general music degree, which I specialised in performance as I could through the modules. <laughs>
finishing off the first part of our interview with Hannah with another track from her album Inside Out was uh, Keep Walking, an original composition by Hannah. And we've got more from her in a short while's time, I'm glad to say. With us at the club uh, this week is Matthias Geyer, uh, originally Hungarian-born, now living in London and a former student of the legendary Berklee College of Music. He's with us at the club this week and as a special treat on stage with him is one of the finest saxophonists you're ever likely to see, Alex Garnett. And here is Matthias with a track from his one of his albums called Lullaby of the Leaves.
Also with us at the club this week, on Thursday, we've got a 6.06 special with the band all fired up on the bandstand. And on Sunday from 8 o'clock, it's Arthur Lee's Bootleg Trio. Mornington Lockett is with us on Saturday. And I've got a track from Mornington before we wrap up on the show this week. But back to Hannah we go. And we've got a track lined up, a Chick career original track, actually. You'll find on the album called Windows. Straight Ahead with David Lewis.
So you mentioned that you were living at Hall, so obviously you left home when you were on campus. Did that mean that you kind of stayed in London and in the main jazz scene at the end of being a student? Did you decide, right, I'm going to be a musician? Well, was that a, f- a clear thought that you had? I'm going to be a musician, I'm going to throw both feet into this and see where it goes. Was that how it went? No, no, not at all, really. I Oh, really? I... Um... I moved home in my second year at Goldsmiths and I used to travel in and out for what mm. I needed. And I kind of lived in my car quite a bit. So I had a few keys to other people's houses and my uncle's house in. Did they know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were they just arrived one night? Yeah. He was in- <laughs> so I had, I had local keys like my uncle's in Bromley and I would just kind of go wherever I needed. I did have a blow up bed in the back of my car. An essential, I'm sure, for many of us, yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then I came out having done everything and I I kind of went with my, this is where it sort of changes. My parents said, oh, well, you you know, you won't be able to make any living out of music. So I actually... (laughs) They weren't wrong. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I kind of took a step back for quite a while and uh, didn't do much playing. I'd kept practicing at home. Um, and then, yeah, and it's only really been in the past sort of six or seven years that I've really gone for it now. I just, mm-hmm. now's the time as well. I was a bit of a scaredy cat, I think, before. And, uh, you know, somebody might not give me the tick. <laughs> uh, but you've got to test yourself, you see. If you don't rise above the parapet, you're never going to know. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a scary, it's a scary thing, isn't it, being out there? So you recorded three albums to date. Um, we're going to talk about the third of those uh, in a short while. But of course, you've also performed with some great names over the years in town, the likes of Tina May, who's a regular down at the club. Ian Shaw, you and I were talking about just on the preamble to this. Polly Gibbons, Amy Winehouse. So you've played with a lot of good people at some of the really good venues as well, smaller clubs and, and the Barbican and Royal Albert Hall. So your career, although you say you kind of decided later on to really push it, it seems to be on a, a fairly good trajectory, one would suggest. Yeah, I think it, it just sort of meandered along... As it was, and then I needed to push to then do the album and try and kind of become braver with what I was doing, I think. It's quite, I found mm. it quite, I don't know why, I just found it a bit scary, but now now I'm going for it. I thought, let's give it a year, try it out. And in all seriousness, what was the element that you found scary? Was it the thought of potential failure, the thought that people might not like what you produce and make, the sound that you make? What was the area that was holding you back, do you think? I think it was probably a mixture of those. And also, it's the fear of the unknown, isn't it? You don't quite know what what, yeah, what people will think, how do you go about it, all those sorts of things. I, I just get, I guess I'm just a bit calculated. I don't really think, oh, it might go wrong like that. So, I've, I've, I've often thought for musicians, you know, certainly when you go and watch them at smaller venues, the bigger venues are, are a different kind of beast but the smaller venues where they're so intimate I've often thought it takes it takes balls to get up there and perform and you know I know the guys and you, you will love it I know it's what's in your DNA but nonetheless it's one of those things you've just got to get around to getting used to I suppose isn't it which yeah. you've now done yeah I've always loved it I think now with the album Inside Out it's kind of everything for me on the outside and I think that's what kind of I needed to do mm-hmm. Be- become an artist I guess Exactly that, yeah. I mean, I've noticed you've been very busy on social. So, I mean, you know, I could see that there was a ramp in what you're working towards, even before I knew about the album project. It was clear that something was going on because of visibility, which is a big part of, of the game these days. You know, if your head isn't higher than the others and if people don't see you, you're not going to get the, you know, maybe get the gigs or, and you need that airtime. You need that attention. It's 
kind of part of what you're doing. So, um, so let's let's talk a little bit about the album then and uh, the concept of it, where it came from, how long ago you started working on it. Okay, so it had been in my mind to do an album for a few years, and then uh, just before lockdown, my dad actually passed away. He lost his long fight with cancer, so that kind of triggered a lot of emotion in me and then lockdown happened which meant we were sort of inside weren't we a lot more and then like once I could get over some of the grief and I could sit down and practice and focus better I decided that now was the time to try and kind of solidify what I've been trying to think about up until then so every Wednesday I decided it was composition day here comes a tick again yeah, exactly. I like a, I like a plan. So, uh, and out of that came quite a few of the compositions on this album, and a lot of them, some of them, actually only just before Christmas, and then we recorded in March. So it was it was a really lovely process for me, and it and it was kind of I guess it was safe for me because we weren't going out, and I was doing a few lockdown videos and things, but I had the time to really kind of stick with it, try things out. And I was recording stuff at home and layering up different ideas. And, and it, it was just, just felt like the right time now. And who are the other guys on the album with you? Who are the other artists? So I've played with these guys for years uh, and I couldn't think of anyone better to do this album with. So we've got Nick France on drums and percussion, mm-hmm. John Crawford on piano and Rob Statham on electric bass. And they've been your regular go-to? Yeah. And so was the album recorded at all remotely or did you manage to actually just do all the compositions, get it out to the guys maybe during lockdown, but you were able to record it this year? Yeah, we, we recorded at Mastercord uh, over two days. Right. And we rehearsed in February because the studios were opening for professional musicians. So we actually did get a rehearsal as well. Whoa. Well, fantastic. Yes, it wasn't a turn up and play. Yeah, yeah, which is good. And we, we did do two long days in the studio and Ian came in on the second day to record his vocals. Um, and I rehearsed with Ian on Zoom and we um, and he, he was showing me the fabulous lyrics that he'd written to tracks I wrote afterward. Mm-hmm. Really good. Do you generally write lyrics or is that not something you've got into so far? No, never. This is the first time that um, I've given my melody to somebody else and then they've done their words to it so i i wouldn't say being a control freak but being somebody that likes to be in control i'll phrase it that way handing out your melody to somebody else that was obviously like almost a, a, a quite a line in the sand you wasn't it you're handing it out for somebody to all well not critique but look at ahead of time and yeah. contribute towards yeah really really like that and also when, when we had the rehearsal with the band i was like oh i hope you like my tune <laughs> <laughs> but you're the boss it's your band it's your album yeah, but I really so value you're in them. Control. They ha- they're amazing players. You know, they I really value their opinion. And you mentioned a minute ago about laying up. My 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 studio is pricked up. Does mm. that mean you're quite techy? Do you enjoy the whole recording process? Okay, I know you went to a professional studio for the actual recording, but at home, do you enjoy the process of sitting down and just having a few multi-track sessions and seeing what comes out? I do, and especially with a few tracks uh, on the album, it actually feed the birds which I decided to do as a kind of Latin-y, kind of weird Afro groove. Uh, I was just mocking around with different things and that's that was the one that I kind of fell in love with for that song. And that was just an experiment like that, mm-hmm. just trying different stuff out and different grooves and layering things up. And, and then actually in the studio, we ended up with a choir of Ian 
and acquire saxes on different things. So that was really cool too. It was, it was, it was good just to have a bit of fun. In the studio, when you were recording, did you get hands on there or did you let the desk do its thing, the room did the recording, or did you actually get involved on that side of it as well? No, I just let Ronan do his thing. <laughs> you let them do their thing. <laughs> but so, I learned how to use that button. On the second day at last, they told me there's this button, you lean into the microphone and you speak into the cans. Nah, uh, that button, the, yeah. the secret button. <laughs> Makes it feel all professional, doesn't it, when you press that big button? <laughs> so I know it's being released down at the club on, on the 22nd, um, but uh, what formats is it going to be physically available in? I mean, presumably it'd be on all the normal streaming platforms and available to buy as a digital, yep. but are you physical copies as well? Yes, I have many CDs here <laughs> uh, and, it, and it's already available to pre-order now. And mm -hmm. everybody who's seen the artwork for it has said it would look great on vinyl. So mm. depending on how well it goes down, then I might look at getting some vinyl done. Because it's a self-release project, I take it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh, I heard the pain there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're not cheap, these projects, are they? No, no. <laughs> By the time you pay for the guys and you get these CDs pressed, the albums made, pay for the mastering, mixing, studio. To I'm sorry, I'm not meaning to give you grey hairs, but yeah, I've heard the stories a couple of times. They're not cheap projects, are they? No, no. And you could, I couldn't do one every year. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, hopefully, at least now with things opening up, that you can go back on gigs. Because obviously, I'm sure people realise a very important part of a, of a musician's earning is to actually sell physical copies of these at gigs. It, it's, you need to sell the product you've made to help fuel further gigs and so on, don't you? Uh, further projects. Yeah. So it's really important that you know people try and supply. Uh, you're over on Bandcamp as well, so that's the other thing. People can buy your music at Bandcamp, where the music you get a good portion. Are they still doing a thing first Friday of the month mm, where the musicians get all the money? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, they're, they're a great site. And obviously going to your own website is a, is a great way to buy it because, again, the money goes to you, doesn't it? So apart from the fact that uh, there's no more albums we, uh, planned at the moment and we understand why, uh -huh. is, the, is the diary looking good for you? Are you going to be able to get out and gig the album? Yeah, I'm hoping so. We've got um, obviously the launch. Then I'm playing the London Jazz Festival in November. Well-timed, yeah. And then I need to be brave and try and get some gigs, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you're on one at the moment. You've got a bit of energy about you. So I don't think, I think promoters are going to be foolhardy to turn you away. Just keep knocking on the door. Just keep banging. That's the thing. I need a gig. I need a gig. Yeah. It's, it's be the, tenacious. It's the chase. If they say up. no, come find me. I'll, I'll, I'll do the nasty voice for you. Okay. That's, that's the deal. <laughs> <laughs> what have I talked myself into? I, sh I should never have said it, should I? Uh -huh. But no, I'm sure with all, you, you, the notoriety you're now achieving, because I say the social media is very important and the fact that you're launching at the six. And, you know, I know other stations are picking up on playing it as well. And that's the, you know, that's part of the thing. And the album deserves to be heard and get some success behind it. So fingers crossed, you know, and I say you've timed it just before the London Jazz Festival. Where were you playing during the Jazz Festival out of interest? We're at Toulouse-Lautrec. See? Getting some nice gigs. Yeah. Getting some nice gigs. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, nice gigs. So I mentioned that you're over at Bandcamp. Mm. You're easy to find over there. You're on Instagram, Hannah Horton Sachs. You're on Twitter, Hannah Horton Sachs. Pretty much Hannah Horton Sachs all over, really, isn't it? Yeah, I was lucky. I got that early. And also HannahHorton.com. <laughs> yeah, there's no one at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yes, HannahHorton.com. <laughs> the website where I spent my afternoon. Yes, go and look at HannahHorton.com and you can find out more about Hannah there and, and the previous albums. Well, and the first album, actually, rather touchingly, had a, a, a song dedicated to your grandma on it, didn't it? The Forget Me Not yeah, track on there. Yeah, Forget Me Not. She passed away and she really loved... There's two, lots of things I remember about her. She really loved Forget Me Nots and she also really loved Growing Tomatoes from Seed. That was the other thing that she used to love doing. That's definitely an easier song title. <laughs> 
Growing a tomato from seed would not work so well on a jazz album. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so we won't forget. So I wasn't meant to three of Yeah, three of you. And we are going to perform that, I think, again at the at the launch because the band loved that tune. Um, and it's right, good yeah. to, to revisit some old material in a different way now, actually. It is, yeah, because you, obviously you've changed in your style and the way you want to approach the numbers, even though the tracks that you wrote, musicians never stand still. It's not, well, that's the nature of the beast, isn't it? Art should always move forward. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it sounds like it's exciting times ahead for you then. London Jazz Festival, the launch of the club, album, possibly a vinyl if it goes well. Yeah, fingers crossed. Time's looking, time's <laughs> looking good for you, aren't they? So, oh, Hannah, it's great to get a hold of you just before the uh, launch down at the club. So, you know, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, and thank you. Uh, I'll be sure to be supporting it and giving it full support on the show and playing loads of tracks from it. So can't wait to get my hands on the album in itself. Yay. Thank you for having me.
Finishing off the interview with Hannah with a track that, to my mind at least, is one of the most beautiful standards ever, Peacocks. I've seen it performed live a few times and Hannah's rendition of it on this album, Inside Out, is equally gorgeous. It's a 10-track album. I know Hannah did mention a personnel, but it never hurts to mention them again. Obviously, Hannah is on the sax. You've got John Crawford on piano, Nick France on drums, Rob Statham's on the bass and Ian Shaw making a guest appearance on the vocal tracks. And so to a track now from the Scottish National Big Band. Always have trouble with that. Scottish National Big Band (laughs) featuring Kurt Elling and Tommy Smith. And this is Duke Ellington's Sound of Love. Straight ahead with the 606 Club and David Lewis. have to feel it when love's echoes are dying and the world seems suddenly still and that soft spoken melody Love 
Earlier this year, I was sent the album by Zoe Gilby. The album's called Aurora, featuring Noel Dennis, Mark Williams, Andy Champion and Russ Morgan alongside Zoe. And I thought it's time we go back and revisit it. So here is Ebb and Flow. (laughs) 
skating, not fading, splashing, lapping, ebb and flow, beguiling, washed away in haste, between bewitching and mist, a secret, temptation, from Zoe Gilby and the album Aurora. And uh, as we start to look back, very gently at least, but start to look back at some of the albums released this year, once again, it's been a fantastic year for new jazz albums. And during the course of the summer, Georgia Mancho and Alan Broadbent released their album Quiet Is The Star. It's a beautiful project that comes along with a booklet as well, all about the making of the album. And uh, it's garnered a lot of attention during the course of the last few months, and rightly so. So again, let's go back and listen to a track from that album now. And this is Tell The River. must believe when each star up in the sky so far away whether they 
George Man Show and Tell the River. Many thanks indeed to Hannah for finding the time to come on the show this week. Don't forget to check her out on social media, pretty much Hannah Horton Sachs across Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and visit her website, hannahhorton.com. Which just leaves me time to play the track that I mentioned we had from Mornington Lockett, who is with us this coming Saturday at the club. And a very special guest, along with Mornington, is Henry Lowther. He's going to be on stage. All the gig details, of course are on the website 606club.co.uk. But the track that I've got ready to play us out with this week, Falling in Love, is a track that Mornington sent me when we had him on the show, actually. Jim Hart's on the vibe, Steve Melling's on the piano, Paul Morgan bass and Martin Drew's on the drums. The actual lineup on this band won British Jazz Award for Best Group a few years ago, and it is them that play us out on this week's show. So many thanks indeed for your company, and I'll be back at the same time for more jazz and conversation next week. Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you. 